Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump in to today's conversation. My guest today is Dorcas Chang Tozen. Dorcas is an award-winning writer, editor, speaker, communications consultant, and former Inc.com columnist. She is the author of several books, including Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul, How to Change the World in Quiet Ways, which we discuss today. Her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Christianity Today, Image Journal, and dozens of other publications in the US, Asia, and Africa. Dorcas has nearly 20 years of experience as a nonprofit and social enterprise professional. A Silicon Valley native, she has lived also in mainland China, Hong Kong, and Nairobi, Kenya. She and her entrepreneur husband have been married for 18 years and have two young sons. In our conversation today, Dorcas shares how she came to understand herself to be a highly sensitive person. She helps us understand what that means and how highly sensitive persons can find ways to engage in emotionally demanding work while also staying true to oneself, pursuing balance and overall well-being. Dorcas, thank you so much for this lovely conversation. Thank you for sharing your stories, your journey, your wisdom and reflections, both here in this conversation and also through your writing. You, in my opinion, are making the world a kinder place. If you would like to learn more about Dorcas's work, you'll find links in the show notes to her website, books, and social media pages. Dorcas, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so glad to be here. I am honored to have you here. And this is one of those conversations that I am always, I don't know if I should say extra intrigued by because you and I never met until just a few minutes ago. We got on Zoom other than a bit of email exchange. We were introduced through a third party and here we are. And I am, I feel really just uh, thrilled and honored to get to jump into this conversation and get to know you through this form. Yes, I am very much looking forward to it. So as we jump in, I have one standard question that I ask all of my guests, and it's around this idea of making life less difficult. The name of the podcast and this work I do comes from a quote by Marianne Evans that says, what do we live for if not to make life less less difficult for each other? And I would love to hear When you hear that, what comes to mind for you? I think the reality is that life is difficult Mm -hmm. and that life is hard sometimes because of choices we make, but oftentimes it's just hard because of circumstances that are out of our control. I, I know that from your story, you've experienced that, I've experienced that, and, um, many, many others have as well. And, um, and it makes me think about how while we can't control what happens to us, we can have some measure of control over how we respond to those hardships, um, as well as how we decide to be in a world that is very difficult, right? Are we are we going to um, let ourselves be overcome by those hardships? Or are we going to try to show up in a way where we bring a little bit more beauty and a little bit more sunshine to the world to hopefully balance out 
the the hardships that we are all having to face. Um, and I certainly think that it is a commonality, right? It is a bonding experience that all of us have have experienced hardship. And the more that we can be in it together and be with one another in it, um, then it does make things a little bit easier. Yes, I resonate deeply with everything you shared. And it, this, I'm going to go this direction, Dirk, because I have one other question. And I'm just kind of curious what stories this might bring to mind for you. When you think back over your life and you think about a moment that you looked around and you thought, oh, wow, life is hard, harder than I might have thought it would be. What comes to mind? Oh, there have been several very significant moments in my life. Uh, certainly the the first and earliest would be when I was... 14, my dad passed away relatively suddenly. He had been sick for three months, sort of came out of the blue and then just was not able to recover. Um, And I'd grown up in a pretty sheltered environment. Uh, Not much had happened in my childhood that was particularly good or bad. It was, it was just, you know, pretty, um, yeah. And then, and then this came out of nowhere and, um, completely knocked me off my feet. You know, I was a teenager. I was just starting high school. My older sister, I have one sibling, she had gone away to college. So it was just, um, so suddenly our family of four became a family of two. It was just my mom and me left in the house. And that was an extraordinarily challenging time. And it continues to shape who I have become, who I'm becoming, I think it is what kind of initially, maybe I always had a, a seed of empathy within me, but um, but I think it uh, it, along with all of the hardships, it caused this um this sense of empathy to just sort of flourish within me of, you know, I went through such deep suffering mm-hmm. at such a young age and, I, it's important to me to be there for others who also are suffering. Um, And so that has been a huge part of what motivated me to go into nonprofit work, to go into justice work um, that has eventually led to uh, the book that I've written that we're going to be talking about. Um, And then I'll just mention briefly, there have been a number of times that I have burned out in my professional career. And two of those burnouts were particularly significant and led me down the path of very serious depression, very serious anxiety. And those were also moments where I just had to reassess my entire life and how I had been functioning in the world, what I thought of things, my perspective on everything. Um, and and it's awful. I would not want to go through those times again. And yet they have also been pivotal in, in shaping me and transforming me and kind of forcing me to learn really important lessons. It's thank you so much for sharing those various pieces, um, that, that teenage years of losing your dad so unexpectedly, what a transformational and form formational event to happen at that time in your life. Yeah. And I really appreciate you sharing just even like those small snapshots into your journey over time of having moments of difficulty and depression and anxiety and and burnout. I'm 
curious when you think about some of those moments, and obviously there are several or might even say many over over the years. When you think about the difficult times, though, what and or who helped make life a little less difficult during some of those times for you? Well, I am a big believer in therapy. (laughs) So um, in each of those significant experiences, I have gotten myself to see a therapist sometimes more willingly than other times, but it has always been helpful to, uh, I'm very much a verbal processor, you know, Mm -hmm. words are very helpful for me in articulating what is my experiences, what I'm feeling. I'm such a deep and strong feeler that it's easy to get overwhelmed by the emotions unless I sort of put some words to them, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, what counseling is really helpful for. Um, I will also highlight that one of in one of my burnout experiences, I was actually living overseas in mainland China. And so didn't really have friend circles. I was there with my husband, but it was just the two of us, um, was very isolated, didn't have, wasn't able to go see a therapist. And, and so, um, there were two individuals who made a huge difference at that point. One was a spiritual director that I connected with who lived in the U S but was willing to do Skype calls with me. So zoom did not yet exist at that point. It was just I remember Skype. Skype. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I think it was her first time using Skype. It was her first time having a client over Skype. And so we, um, we had we had wonderful conversations and there were moments where I, I would spend long periods of time just kind of talking to her forehead because I think she was still figuring out how to use the, <laughs> the camera on her computer. But she was a lovely woman and um, gave me so much insight into kind of my response because I had had this very idealistic version of myself that I would love living overseas and I would thrive living overseas. And it ended up being so much harder than I expected it to be. And and I was incredibly disappointed with myself. Um, And so her insights were extremely helpful. And then I had a friend and this, I feel like it was a once in a lifetime experience. I don't know if I will ever have this again, but she committed to do a weekly Skype call. She was also in the US um, every single week for, I think it went on for about a year and a half. And, you know, with time zones, it was complicated, but she always made it work. She had young kids at the time, still made it work. And um, she was the greatest friend I could have asked for during that time. She let me talk. She let me weep. Um, She was so understanding, um, asked really good questions, provided really good insight. And I think just her consistency in her friendship in showing up for me week after week. I I would like to think she got something out of the experience as well. It wasn't completely one-sided, but it, it was just incredibly generous and thoughtful of her mm. to um to be there for me during a time when I was not a pleasant person to be around. I I was in a very very dark place, really really struggling. Um and so her constant presence and listening ear and empathy and wisdom were just incredible gifts to me during that time. Mm. Um and I also say uh that it I I am a, a person of faith. And so so my faith and um the faith of others definitely helped bolster me as well during those difficult times. Yeah. It's amazing the powerful impact someone's presence has in our life. Your friend just yeah. showing up consistently, making that room. And I, I think 
I think Dorcas, when you, when we reach out to someone during a difficult time, it is, it's easy to feel like, oh, I'm just taking from this person. I'm just taking from this person. And yet I I think like, well, if I get to be there for someone, I feel so honored and privileged that they would reach out to me and, and, and trust me that it's a, it's a gift. And so I, I think about, you know, that comment you made of like, you'd like to think she got something out of it. And in my experience, it's like, we actually, it, it is a gift to allow someone into mm-hmm. a difficult time in our lives. And it's, I, ironically, it's hard to do, at least for me, I find it hard to be, you know, vulnerable and, very you know, share. And yet, um, wow, it is such a gift. So Dorcas, as, as we shift the conversation a little bit to your book and the writing that you've done, your book called, is called Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul. And just even that part of the title grabs my attention. And I would love to, I have, I have so many questions, but I think I'm just going to kind of open it up for you to share about your journey of how did you even come to write this book? What is it about? And I know I'm going to have lots of questions along the way, but I'm just going to start there with a really open question and see where it takes us. Yeah, I think looking back, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I think this book is about 20 years in the making because it Mm -hmm tries to answer a fundamental question that I have been wrestling with for my entire adulthood. So as soon as I finished school, I was really passionate about social justice, immediately entered the nonprofit sector, um, have worked for a number of different nonprofits, um, social enterprises, both in the U.S. and abroad. I've worked in Asia, I've worked in Africa, um, and have loved the work have loved the people I get to work with. It is so clear to me that this is part of who I am. This is kind of what um, I think this along with, with writing um, and storytelling, it's, it's what I was made to do. Um, And yet I, I mentioned the worst burnouts I had, but really I was on a cycle of burning out pretty much every two years, as soon as I entered the workforce, every two years, I would burn out. Mm -hmm. And I, well, one, thought it was normal, (laughs) because I didn't know anything else. And two, I thought that it was the job, like every time it happened, I was like, well, it's because this is going on with the job, or it's because this is happening in the workplace. And so then I would just change jobs. And, um, and then when it started happening in every single job that I went to and every organization I was a part of, um, then I think that's when I had to really pause and and wonder if there was something else going on. Um, but it wasn't until I had these very, very serious burnouts. So um, I had one in 2006 and then another one in 2009. Um, so that was when I was in China. And um, I got to the point where I could not function. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't work. Had to pretty much immediately quit my job. Um, Didn't even want to leave our apartment because I had so much anxiety about being a Chinese American woman in China, in an industrial part of China, where there was very little understanding of what it meant to be ethnically Chinese, but not from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so then it, um, it 
I felt like my entire identity that I had built around this is my calling, this is what I meant to do, was just destroyed um, because I could no longer, I physically could no longer do that work. And there had been signs for years that I was pushing myself too hard physically and emotionally, and I had ignored them, Mm. which is why the burnouts kept getting progressively worse. Um, And so it was at that time, actually, that I started writing because writing was one of the only things that I could do. Writing was, it was just for me. It was just um, for me to process, to reflect, to ask a lot of questions of what in the world is going on? Where do I go from here? Um, And it was such a healing experience for me to be able to put pen to paper, to be able to begin to articulate some of my experience that um, that then I just took this left turn into, into a writing career. Um, and discovered how much I loved it, uh, but also how meaningful it was, how rich the experience was in terms of connecting with other people who had had similar experiences and having the privilege of telling the stories of others um, whose stories might not otherwise be told. Yeah. Uh, and so, so this is all happening. And, um, and then in 2020. So I have just recently returned from another stint living overseas, this time in Nairobi, Kenya with my husband and now our two young kids and the pandemics hit. Mm. Uh, Right. So this is the summer of 2020. I live in California, so we were pretty shut down. Yeah. And Every day, just, you know, every day felt the same. And every day was just a slog, trying to care for our kids, trying to keep up with our work, um, not being able to go anywhere, not being able to see anyone. And then, of course, we also that summer had the murder of George Floyd, all the Black Lives Matter protests were happening. Um, there were was a um, an in- significant increase in incidents of hate against Asian Americans and um, Asians because of the pandemic. So there was so much going on in um, kind of the social context of where we were at, and it was really overwhelming. (laughs) And so I had happened to be approached by um, an editor with Broadleaf, which is uh, my publisher. and, And she asked me, if you were to write another book, what would it be about? And at the time I said, I don't know, let me think about it, because I hadn't been thinking about writing a book. And so um, I went on a walk because it was the only thing that we could do during the pandemic. So I went outside, mm-hmm. went on a walk and thought about this question. And it just sort of hit me in a moment because um, I was so overwhelmed with everything that was happening in that particular moment. And I so wanted to get back out there of like, you know, sign me up for the protests, for the activism, like, let me join an organization. And I was so scared Mm. to do it. Um, And it just really struck me of like, why do I keep getting stuck in this cycle of I'm so drawn to this work. And at the same time, I don't know how to do it in a healthy and sustainable way. Mm. Um, And so in that moment, it just hit me of like, this is the question. This is what I've been wrestling with for 20 years, which is, how how do I do social justice for the sensitive soul? How does that work? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that there were any resources available for people like me um, asking these particular questions. And so brought the idea to to the editor and she really liked it and you know 
three years later, <laughs> here we are. Um, but but this is very much a book that I I wrote for myself um, because I needed it so desperately to help me navigate what it means to be a highly sensitive, highly empathic person in a very difficult world. Um, but as somebody who wants to advocate, who wants to serve, who wants to be out there, um, but also as someone who needs to be mindful of, I can't, it, it is physically not possible for me to keep burning out and to continue working in the way that I did in the past. And and so what is what can it look like moving forward? What an incredible journey. Yeah, thanks. It is, yeah, it just kind of gives me chills as you're sharing. I would love to hear you share what what it means to be that sensitive soul, to be a highly sensitive person, a highly empathic person. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so highly sensitive person is a term coined by Dr. Elaine Aaron. 30 something years ago. So it's actually relatively new to our understanding of psychology, but it is a personality trait, um, just like being introverted or extroverted, right? It's a personality trait. It's just how we're born, how we're wired. And uh, it is somewhere in the range of 15 to I've even heard up to 30% of the population can be highly sensitive. Um, and it's on a spectrum. You know, some people are just maybe a little bit highly sensitive. Some like me are extremely highly sensitive. Uh, but if you yourself are not highly sensitive, you certainly know somebody who is because it is a significant uh, proportion of the population. And so to be highly sensitive means that you are, um, you experience the world a little bit more intensely than non-highly sensitive people. So in terms of how you um, take in the world through your senses. So it is oftentimes the case, people who are highly sensitive, um, they are sensitive to loud noises, to bright lights, to um, maybe tastes and smells. Like it is actually more intense to them. Like if a highly sensitive and non-highly sensitive piece of uh, person were standing right next to each other, they both heard the same loud noise. It would actually sound louder to the highly sensitive person. And it would kind of hit them a little bit harder um, because it would be a more intense experience for them. Um, so that's one aspect of it. There's also um, the emotional aspect of highly sensitive people are just very deep feelers, same for highly empathic people. Um, and so you live in a world of emotions, of feelings. You're constantly processing through, you know, what am I feeling? What am I experiencing? And, and things will hit you harder. Um, and I think especially those, those tough emotions of, of grief and sorrow and pain and hurt um those those can really really stick with you um highly sensitive individuals are also really deep thinkers so they tend to process a lot um they think about you know what they said what they did what they experienced they think about what other people are doing there's just there's just a lot going on in the internal world of um of a highly sensitive person. And the vast majority of highly sensitive people are also empathic um, because I think they are such deep feelers because they just have, a, they're so in tune with the world around them, with the vibe of 
whatever room they walk into, um, however the person they're talking to may be feeling right. And so it's just, it goes hand in hand of like, you can't really interact with somebody without also kind of sensing how they're feeling, sensing, you know, what their energy is like. Um, and, and so to be a highly sensitive person in the world is to feel a lot. It's to experience a lot, to notice a lot. Uh, and so it is not uncommon for sensitive souls to just get kind of overwhelmed with life mm. sometimes and and need to retreat or withdraw, right? You might need need some some solitude, some quiet, some peace, some beauty, right? Mm. To just kind of help you recenter and reground yourself um, because there there can be so much stimulation that comes at you from um, from all around. But at the same time, that is also why sensitive people are very much drawn to um to work that I think is very human centered um because because we care so deeply about our fellow human beings and we feel their suffering on a level um that is maybe more deeper than than your typical non-highly sensitive person. Yeah. And I mean, it it just strikes me that the highly sensitive, highly empathic person sees other people's pain points perhaps quicker than someone who's not and notices those things more often and more quickly. Yes. I think that is one of the most significant gifts that sensitive people bring to organizations, to groups, to communities is that they kind of have this ability to notice who is it that um, that's being left out? Who is it that isn't being taken care of? Who is it that is um, being treated unfairly? Or who is suffering and in pain? And, um, and they're more likely to be able to see that than others. And so that's that's a really significant gift that you need. You need absolutely need people like that in your communities to be able to um, point out what is not right, what is not okay, and what needs to be improved. Yeah. Dirkus, would you share a little bit about your journey of actually discovering these traits in yourself and having the terms to put to it? Because I, um, it, it seems like that's really impactful, right? To not just be like, oh, I just burn out every couple of years, but to actually realize, oh, there's a, you know, there's a way that my brain is wired up and that this is leading to this, like, and then to have a term seems really potentially very helpful. And what was your journey to get there to really understand what it means to be a highly sensitive person, to be highly empathic? I think I had known for most of my life that I was a very deep feeler. You know, I cry really easily. I'm like always weeping when I'm watching movies and TV shows. Hallmark, Hallmark or, commercials. And right, like yes, yes, very much so. You yeah. know, if I see someone else crying, I will instantly start crying. Yeah. Um, and I have been told that I'm very sensitive. I think that's one of the um that's one of the challenges of being a sensitive soul is that at least you know here in the US we we live in a culture that generally um tends to favor individuals who are more assertive, 
more aggressive, who will are willing to put themselves out there and speak loudly and confidently, right? Those are the people that we see as leaders and we think they're smarter and they're more capable. Um, and so there's definitely this preference for particular personality traits over others. And um, so it's not uncommon at all for highly sensitive people to be told you're just too sensitive and you need to get over it, right? And there is also, I think, this this common misunderstanding that it's something you can just change, like a switch you can turn on and off, right? <laughs> and so, um, so for many years, that's what I thought of like, okay, I just need to grow tougher skin. I just need mm. to get over it. I just need to, I need to be like all these other people that I see around me. And when you're in nonprofit spaces, when you're in justice spaces, there are a lot of really tough people and they are amazing. You need those tough people um, in, in these, you know, um, in these contentious spaces, you know, who are unafraid to advocate and speak out. Uh, and yet I, I wanted so badly to be them and I never could. And I tried really hard um, to be just like them to the point where I, my body completely shut down because I had pushed myself too hard mm -hmm. to be somebody that I was not. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think it was a long journey just to begin to accept, okay, I think this is the way I am. I don't know that I can change and that there are actually really beautiful things about this personality trait. Yeah. Um, it's only in very recent years that I've had the language around it um, and that I've been doing more research on it and understanding like, okay, you know, it's how I'm wired. It's not that uncommon. There's a lot of people like me. It's not that there's anything particularly weird or wrong with me. Um, and to uh, feel empowered to lean into and what are the particular things that I can bring um, with who I am. Um, I think this real embracing of, I don't need to be exactly like that social activist that I see over there. Mm -hmm. I can be an activist in my own way. And, and in writing this book, I've come to believe that we actually need activists of all temperaments, um, of all different you know, gifts and talents and abilities and interests. Um, that's really how change is going to happen. We don't need just one archetype <laughs> person who's going to go out and, you know, do everything. Um, and, and so it has been, I think it has felt very freeing mm. to release those expectations that I placed on myself, that others placed on me, that I was supposed to be a certain way mm. and that I had just gotten it wrong, but instead to believe that, no, this is the way I am. It's actually wonderful the way I am. I mean, there's limitations and weaknesses like every personality trait, um, but there's also a lot of strengths, and and that's what I need to to embrace and um, and try to use to the best of my ability. And that is ultimately what is going to allow me to remain in these spaces, organizations, communities that I love in a way that feels sustainable and healthy for me. Yeah. There's so many different thoughts coming to mind as I listen to you share, Dorcas, and I know um, I I probably fall somewhere on the scale, maybe a little bit more on the mild side, but, you know, of that 
being sensitive and being a highly empathic person and being told you're just too sensitive. And a number of friends are coming to mind who have had similar stories of, you know, no, you're just too sensitive. You're too sensitive. And it really, I mean, I just love what you're sharing about the gifts that a highly sensitive person brings that a highly empathic person brings to the world and every single gift and strength when it's overdone can become a little bit of a liability. We all have to have that awareness, right? Um, And yet it does seem in our societies, many of our Western societies, also other locations around the world that I've gotten to know where it's, people are just encouraged, put the emotions aside, put the feelings aside. We need to, you know, just toughen up. And um, it's, it, it, I'm glad, I mean, there's slow shifts in culture of, of that, you know, shifting and changing and realizing the beauty of sensitivity. And yet by and large, when I look around, it's still, the majority is not there fully embracing these gifts. Yes. Very much so. And and even though it is not a small proportion of the population, it is still a minority of yeah. that will be sensitive, right? So if it's let's say one in five, you know, then then four out of five are not necessarily going to relate to that. And um and whenever you're not like the majority, it, it can be a little bit hard for mm-hmm. for others to recognize how you fit or um what unique gifts you can bring yeah so for the sensitive soul what what have you discovered for really helping someone with with such a sensitive soul to be able to fully engage in social justice movements Mm -hmm. I think that it starts with recognizing who you are and accepting that, embracing that, um, really understanding. Because I, I think I, um, for a long time, and it's not just me, there there has been research done within activist spaces um, that demonstrate that there is a culture of self-sacrifice and self-martyrdom within activist circles to the point where you know, self-care is derided. If you want to take the weekend off, then your commitment to the entire cause is questioned, right? It's wow. um, it's gotten pretty extreme in terms of the expectations and standards that we hold one another to. Um, and, and so I think I also very much bought into that, this idea that if I'm doing this work, then Basically, the more suffering I feel, like the more exhausted I am, the more stressed I am, the more painful it all is, the more sad I am, then that must mean that I'm doing it right, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and there, I think, also is very much this value for solidarity, which I think is a value. It's It is meaningful to be willing to suffer with those who are suffering. At the same time, um, the reality of what's happening is that so many activists are going down this path of martyrdom, and they only last the average, you know, stint of somebody working in the nonprofit activist space is 
um, around five years and then people burn out and they burn out so badly that they leave the sector altogether and they don't Mm. come back. Um, And so that is the price that we are paying as a collective of, you know, all of these individuals. I just, I think about how much wisdom, experience, passion, um, energy that we are losing because we have not been able to have the conversation around how do we actually be kind to ourselves and one another as we are doing this really challenging really heart-wrenching work. Yeah. And um and I think that that question is all the more pertinent for people who are highly sensitive because you know if your average non non-highly sensitive person is going to burn out in 5 years then that number is probably more like 2 or 3 years for a highly sensitive person. Yeah. And so if you want to be able to continue to contribute to the causes that you care deeply about you know, if if this is not just a one or two year thing and then you're done, then I think we do need to think very seriously about what does it mean to um, be in this work and still find joy, you know, and still um, have some measure of peace and gratitude um, and and I think that that all comes when we are our authentic selves, when we are doing work that truly fits with who we are, and we're not trying to, you know, contort ourselves into somebody else or into some other shape that we think we're supposed to fit. And um, and I think that that is a huge part of of what it means or what, what, um, allows us to be able to, um, sustain ourselves in, in this kind of work. I think the other thing is, um, is one thing that I, I discovered in my research that I found really interesting and affirming and something that is rarely talked about among social activists is that when you research people that we really admire, you know, Gandhi, Dr. King, Nelson Mandela, right? Like all these huge um, figures in in social justice. It is not uncommon at all to find that they had this rhythm of engagement where they would engage, they would do some, you know, major social action, um, a march, a protest, a speech, something. And then they, they would be quiet for a little while. Like they, mm-hmm. they would go and, um, you know, be with their community, maybe they're planning, maybe they're thinking, maybe they're processing, but it wasn't a, like, somehow we have in our mind, this picture of like day in, day out, 24 seven, you just mm-hmm. have to be working toward the cause. And if you're not doing it during your every waking moment, then, then you're not, you're not a true activist. Hmm. Um, But Gandhi in particular, he would, you know, so he had his marches, he had his fasts, he, you know, there were boycotts, but he would do these really significant social actions. And then he would just withdraw from the public eye for months at a time. Hmm. He would go to his ashram, he would meditate, he would sit, he would be with people. um, And then he would come back out and and do the next thing right and and i think that this is actually a very human way mm-hmm. of being that you have seasons right you have rhythms you um you engage you're active you put a lot of energy out there 
And then you give yourself time to recover. Um, and, and that recovery time may be a day, it may be a week, it may be years, right? It is, mm-hmm. It's not at all uncommon for people to kind of dip in and out of activist work. Um, and that's okay, because if you think about sort of the sum total of what you can contribute over a lifetime, right, as opposed to like going at it super intensively for, you know, a year or two, and then you're done. Um, I would much rather have people who can, who can come back, you know, when, when they're a little bit older and more mature, more experienced, um, and contribute again to these um, wonderful causes. And, and so I think that that um, permission to not have to be an activist 24-7, but to also allow yourself to rest, to be with the people you love, to do activities that really nourish your soul. Um, those are the things that that are really going to keep you um, in this kind of work. It's fascinating hearing about those stories and thinking about the the drive that we have in modern society and especially with technology and social media and to think about societal changes typically don't happen quickly. It's, it's a accumulation of small shifts and changes and a couple steps forward and a few steps back and then forward again. And, and so it's fascinating to think about that step in, be active, do something significant, and then have time to recover it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that sounds really healthy. <laughs> yes, yes. And you bring up a really good point, which is that like, this is a long fight, right? Yeah. This is not, things are not going to change overnight or in, you know, a month. And, and so if we truly care about social change, yeah, let's try to be in it for the long run. And to be in it for the long run, we need to be able to approach it in in healthy ways for ourselves and for the next generation, right? Because oftentimes um, movements movements, um, last across multiple generations, right? And so so to be able to um, have experienced people who can pass on their wisdom to the next generation, as opposed to just everybody flaming out, and then that's it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's incredibly important for mm-hmm. us to look out for one another and for ourselves, so that we can continue to um, to do the work and and to pass on the work to others. Yeah, Dorcas, what are how do you and how do you re- recommend other people manage the recognizing that we have so far to go in so many areas of justice throughout our society, throughout our world. And also things are better than they were. Like progress has been made and we still have more progress to make. Sometimes I get overwhelmed by the lack I'm like, it's 2023, folks. Really? Are we still fighting about these things and being judgmental about these people? Like, really? And I can get kind of overwhelmed by it all and just want to shut myself off to it. And then I can step back and I can say, okay, well, I mean, there has been progress, right? How do we manage to hold both of those truths? And I don't even know. Um, I'll just stop talking and let you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's hard. 
it is really hard. It is really discouraging. I will say, though, that um, we are not doing ourselves any favors when we doom scroll, Mm -hmm. when we spend a lot of time on social media. I think one of the challenges nowadays, I mean, as I've been talking to people after this book came out, that's I think that is the word that I have heard over and over and over again is this, I feel overwhelmed, overwhelmed, yeah. right? And um, and we are just living in this particular time, right? Where we have access to so much information. Yeah. We have access to news from almost anywhere in the world at any moment in time. And honestly, I don't believe that our human brains have mm. the capacity to hold that much information, right? In terms of we as individuals were not um, made to to carry the weight of the entire world on our shoulders. And of course, you know, the way that news outlets work, right? They're they're gonna focus on the negatives. And so when you're reading the news, that's what's that's what you're gonna hear, right? Because anything that leads to a response of anger, fear, suspicion, disbelief, all of those things, that's what leads us to click, right? Which is what they most want. And and so that's what they're going to focus on. Um, And so, yes, the reality is that there are good things happening. So, um, So it is a very intentional choice to limit the amount of bad news that you take in. I think it is important to know what's going on in the world. Like I, I am a news junkie. I scan the headlines every day. Um, at the same time, I have made the intentional choice of, I don't read, well, I don't watch the news because um, visual pictures will hit me a lot harder than reading mm-hmm. about something will. Um, I also actually don't listen to the news very often. I used to be like just obsessed with NPR and I would listen mm-hmm. to NPR nonstop. But that also, you know, I think like hearing people's voices hearing the sounds of what they may be experiencing, um, that would hit me really, really hard. So so I have chosen to limit my um, news consumption to reading the news. Mm. And and I primarily skim the headlines and then we'll like dive deep into a few things. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I see a headline and I will tell myself, I know that if I read this article, it's going to like, it's just going to um, make me sick to my stomach for the rest of the day. And it's going to harm my ability to um, do actually the good and important work I have on my plate, right? The ways in which I am trying to make a difference. And, and so I will make the choice of, you know, it's enough for me to know that this is happening, but I don't need to know every single detail. I don't need to hear every single person's story. And, and I think like where you fall in that um, will depend on each person. But I do think that that is a question worth asking is, you know, how much negative um, information can I take in and still be able to be healthy and balanced? Um, and, and again, you know, because none of us can fix everything in the world, what are maybe the few things that are most important to me that I will spend my time on that I will try to learn more about, um, as well as making the choice to like, let me seek out 
the organizations, the individuals, the communities that are doing really great work. Um, and, and let me find them. Let me learn what they're doing. Maybe I'll donate to them. Maybe I'll volunteer with them. I think um, it's easier to become overwhelmed when we isolate ourselves, right? But the more that we connect with others, um, the more there is this sense of, I am not alone. There yeah. are a lot of others who care about this as well. There are a lot of people who are trying to do something about it and are doing really good things in the world. And I think that, that um, that's really important for helping mm-hmm. to sustain our hope um, and and our own ability to continue to engage. Yeah. There's so much wisdom in what you're sharing. And I I love these ideas of trying to find the maybe few things to focus on. And I think about, um, I think it comes from Stephen Covey, but the idea of asking, what can I control? What can I influence? And then what am I concerned about? Mm -hmm. And it's tough because especially as a sensitive person, empathic person, I'm concerned about a lot for a lot of different people. Everything. (laughs) Yeah. But I can't actually, certainly can't control, uh, outside of basically myself and and my circle of influence i mean it it's limited i am i'm one person and so i what i hear you saying and kind of the filter i'm putting it through is to recognize okay i have these concerns but if all, if all of my energy and capacity is going towards things that i'm concerned about but i don't have any influence over then i'm not going to be able to do I'm not going to make any impact in the world. And so how can I focus on something that I actually can make an impact on while recognizing I am going to have this concern? Uh, It doesn't mean I'm not concerned about these things. It's just that I'm, I'm focusing my attention and my capacities and my actions on things that I can actually touch and, and influence. Yes. Well, and when we become overwhelmed, right, the vast majority of us become paralyzed. Yeah. When you're paralyzed, you can't do anything. Right. And so I think for each of us, it is critical to notice because we all will have them. They'll look different for every person, but we'll all have little signals that our brain and our body will give off to us that we are starting to become overwhelmed. And so to be able to learn what those signals are and to recognize them and and when that happens to respond and be like, okay, I am starting to become overwhelmed. I know I need to pull back a little bit or I need to make this adjustment Um, because trust me, I have been in those moments of utter paralysis, not just sort of emotional overwhelm, but like the physical, like complete (laughs) physical breakdown where I could not physically do anything except eat and cry and sleep, um, you don't want to go there. You really don't want to go there. Um, And and so it's really important to listen to our bodies and and what um, I think there's there's so much wisdom in our bodies. Like sometimes we cognitively don't even know something or we don't acknowledge it. And and yet our bodies will know and they're they're, you know, it's sending up flags right and left and um, we just may not be paying attention to it. Um, so, so yes, absolutely. And, and I am a big proponent of, um, engaging in the world doesn't have to involve huge action, Mm -hmm. right? So, so that is also, um, a really significant 
theme of my book is that I, I really would love for us to broaden the definition of what social activism is, that it's not just about joining a protest, being part of a march, speaking in front of a crowd, um, canvassing, you know, debating. Those are all legitimate. Um, there are people who are really good at that and really enjoy that, and that's wonderful for them. And then there are going to be, you know, sensitive, empathic, introverted people who that's really hard for them. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's okay because there are hundreds of other ways that you can engage in meaningful activism that doesn't look at all like protesting, marching, yelling at people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in my book, I actually have some very specific ideas and examples of people who were like academic researchers. Um, researchers provide us with the information and the data that we need so that we truly understand, if we're talking about social inequality, what is this inequality? How unequal is it? What are the root causes? Um, who is being most affected, right? This is critical information that we need to be able to know how to respond. How do we actually begin to make things better? Well, we can only make things better if we can truly diagnose what the problem is. Um, I, I write about the power of creatives and artists, right? So every social movement has been fueled by music and art and poetry and stories that have painted a vision for how the world could be. So this kind of answers your earlier question as well in terms of like, where do we find hope? Um, Art is certainly a place, Mm -hmm. art and beauty is certainly a place Mm -hmm. where we can find hope Um, because artists have an imagination for, you know, who we could become as people, what our societies could look like. Um, And they oftentimes provide the inspiration to keep people going, even when it's really discouraging, even when it looks like that progress is not being made. Um, people who are historians, documentary uh, documentarians, librarians, even like their um, their ability to document what has happened, so that we can learn from it, um, so that wrongs can be righted, so that justice can um, can happen. That's that's crucial. Then they they also help that make that information available um, to the general public and so that it's um, there is broad accountability for what has happened. There are engineers who are creating new technologies that vastly improve the quality of life of people around the world um, who who are you know really struggling with with poverty or oppressive systems. Um, but they don't have enough tools at their disposal to help them break out of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, so there are so many ways in which you can, in who you are, where you are, the gifts mm-hmm. and interests that you already have, mm-hmm. still contribute to meaningful causes. Um, and and what was so encouraging to me was there are, so there are more than a hundred different activists from history, as well as a few contemporary ones that I mentioned in my book. And they're all doing really creative, unconventional things. And yet um, it's really effective. So um, so it's meaningful, it's effective, and it leads to real change. And when we're talking about complex 
social challenges, why wouldn't we want to have as many people trying to tackle those challenges from as many different angles as possible, right? And I think that's what this opens us up to when we are willing to um, acknowledge that activism can look like so many different things, then um, then it gives us the ability to embrace so many more creative approaches um, to advocating for change. Yeah, I love everything you're saying. And it, it brings me full circle to this idea of making life less difficult. I, you know, one of the reasons I'm so drawn to that phrase is that going through difficult times addressing difficult problems we have there's a lot of people who are like shouldn't we try to make life easier not just less difficult make it better and i and i say you know i'm all for making life easier when we can and making it better in my experience though there's some things that we can't there's no magic wand mm-hmm. there's no quick fix and so to pay attention to the small things, being present for each other, taking small steps and small actions towards making things less difficult does take us in the ultimate direction that we want to go. And I think you're really saying that so beautifully in this area. Yeah. Well, an incremental change is still change, right? Yes. And um, there's, I'm not remembering the exact phrase now right but there's that um that phrase of like a, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step or something right I think to that you nailed it. yes okay yes. yes um right and so every step forward counts and mm-hmm. um and so I I don't think we should at all disregard the ways in which people are making their um their neighborhoods their communities mm-hmm. their families into um into places where there is a value for equality and justice and human dignity, right? I mean, if if you are taking care of little people, if you're a parent or aunt and uncle, teacher, coach, mentor, right? Like, I feel like that's a huge part of what it means to be part of social justice, right? Is how do we raise the next generation? What are the values that we are teaching them? How are we... Um, guiding them in in how to interact with others, how to treat others, how to understand the world around them, and how to respond Mm -hmm. to the things in life that are difficult and unfair and unjust. Um, and, And so, yes, like, I think wherever you're at, with whatever you have, to, um, to think creatively uh, about how could that, how could I begin to contribute that toward this greater social good. Um, and maybe you already are and you just haven't recognized it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's that's ultimately how change happens, right? Is is a lot of people doing a lot of different, probably mostly small behind the scenes things. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's that's how we're going to see our societies change. I mean the civil rights movement um, although certainly we still have a ways to go, but the progress that they were able to make, that didn't happen just because of Dr. King, yeah. right? Dr. King was just one person. There were tens of thousands, if not more people um, working tirelessly behind the scenes, doing everything that they could do in in their, in the spaces where they were, right? And, and their 
faithful, um, loving acts of, of service and advocacy, I see it all as the scaffolding upon which a leader like Dr. King can stand. I mean, his his words, his message, no one's going to hear that except that he has an entire movement of people behind him amplifying his message and actually living it out in their day to day. You know, he alone couldn't have done it. And, and that is how we continue to do changes, yeah. that we do it as communities, we do it together, and we do it with appreciation for the many, many different personalities and gifts that people can bring. Yes. Dorcas, this has been incredibly inspiring, getting to talk with you, getting to hear some of your stories, getting to hear some of the wisdom and the insights and reflections that you have written into your book. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. I will be putting links in the show notes so people can find you, the work that you do, your book. But do you want to take a moment to say what's the best avenue of people finding you? Sure. Uh, yes, I have a website. You can find me at changtozen.com. And changtozen is also my handle for Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I um, have begun to limit my social media use because of all of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still there and I will still respond and I love hearing from people. And so do feel free to reach out. Cool. Well, the links will be in the show notes and I'm just really grateful. And I know we've, we've really only skimmed the surface. Um, and yet it is incredibly meaningful and incredibly inspiring. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation and episode of the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Editing is done by Joseph Burdock. Artwork is by Emma Burdock. I'd be honored if you took a moment to share this with a friend and or leave us a review. Together, I truly believe we can make life less difficult.